This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, Oscar-winning editor Alan Heim on his work with director Sidney Lumet on the Oscar winner Network, Bob Fosse on All That Jazz featuring Roy Schneider, and Lenny featuring Dustin Hoffman, and we'll also go into a detailed discussion about his editing process and how he collaborates with both directors and sometimes actors. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can subscribe to us on YouTube on our Jog Road Productions YouTube channel to check out interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, Ewan McGregor, Saul Rubinek, Moon Zappa, and many more. Follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road, Instagram, Jog Road Productions, Facebook, you can like our page, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget, subscribe to our iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. You can get an episode downloaded into your phone or device every week. And also, you can write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page, also under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join Oscar-winning editor Alan Heim as he delves into his process as an editor and some very key points in our conversation about collaborating with both directors and sometimes actors. Did you ever develop a style or sort of principles of working, or was it always sort of dependent upon the movie you were working on and the director that you were working with? I try and work with the material that I'm given. So um, I never thought I had a style. I mean, the one thing that I do do is I try and keep things moving a lot. Um, I make quick decisions, and I try and live with them. And uh, going back to the beginning, you know, your big collaborations at that time, Sidney Lumet, mm. Bob Fosse, why do you think it was that you clicked with those two directors? Well, I, it's hard for me to talk about Sidney because he gave me my first start. I was a sound editor. On Pond Broker. On, that was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was a half the sound editing team on Pond Broker. And I did two or three other movies for Sidney, but I almost never met him because he never came to the recording sessions. <laughs> um, and he... Um, he was doing a, a film with Jerry Greenberg, who used to be my assistant before that in sound, and Sidney and Jerry did not get along at all. And Sidney asked me if I would do uh, his next film, which was The Seagull in Sweden. And of course I jumped at it, because I really wanted to get out of sound work by that time. And Sidney, who was a terrific film, was a terrific filmmaker, um, didn't, he loved cameramen, he loved writers, he loved actors, didn't like editors very much. Mm. And basically he stood over me and told me exactly where to cut. And for me, this was a great learning experience. It was fabulous. I learned how to make quick decisions and live with them. I learned how to read performances. But uh, we immediately went into another movie. Sidney used to do three movies in two years in those days. Wow. We will not see that again. How did he accomplish that? on so many levels, logistically. He had a lot of, had a lot of energy. <laughs> um, I once asked Sidney, I, I digress, but I often do. Um, I went, when we were doing Network, I asked Sidney how he picked his projects, because by this time I had done two movies, and then there was a gap, and then I did yeah. Network. 
and we were going over to Daly's one day, and I said, Cindy, how do you pick your projects? And this doesn't work well on radio, but he held up his hand, he spread his five fingers, and he said, one is very bad, three are going to be average, and one is going to be very good. And the important thing is to keep working. Yeah. Not a bad philosophy in this business, or in any business, really. So um, he ground them out. You know, he was a contract director, really. He had, uh, we, we worked and lived in New York, so we were left alone pretty much by the studios. He always delivered on time, always, um, you know, it was ready to go into the theater and the studios could start making back their money even if the film lost money and they could, it's the economics of the business in those days. So anyway, I, I did two movies for Sydney, that one and a film called Last of the Mo Seagull, which was one of the bad ones. Uh, that was the Chekhov play? Yeah, right? yeah. with ten, 10 stars, uh, James Mason, Simone Signore, uh, David Warner, Vanessa Redgrave, it was, uh, for me, just remarkable to meet these people and hang out with them in the evening, you know, after daily, at dailies. Um, and then I, um, there was a gap in there. I had a commitment after the second movie, which was called Last of the Mobile Hotshots. And it was a, uh, from a script by Tennessee Williams called The Seven Descents of Myrtle. And they shot that in uh, near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I was down there. Also fun, but again, I wasn't cutting, and Sydney was sitting over my shoulder and telling me where to cut. And by this time, I had enough confidence to discuss things with him. And um, well, he was famous for, um, I guess, what's called cutting in the camera. Yeah. So he sort of yeah. had that, as you said, he had it mapped out, kind of how he wanted yeah. things to go together. The problem, the problem when you do that, um, for the film and for the editor, is that you don't have a lot of choices. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in The Seagull, there was a place where Sidney wanted to take out about a three and a half minute, part of a three and a half minute, I'm sorry, three and a half minutes of a scene, yeah. right in the middle. And it was on Kathleen Widows, who was a very well-known stage actress at the time. Anyway, I said to Sydney, that's not gonna work. It's gonna, her head's gonna spin around 360. It'll be like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. You know? <laughs> and he said, don't worry about it. And he patted me on the shoulder. And uh, so I did it, exactly as he said. We had no coverage, so I really had no choice. Mm -hmm. And her head spun around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. And then we figured out some way around it. I don't remember how we did it. But because Sydney never gave you any extra coverage, it was a strain to try and make that kind of a change, or almost any change. Um, then, some years later, I had been doing some stuff in between. I did a television series, The Holocaust, and some other things. And then Sydney asked me to do network. And I was really nervous that he was going to um, um, be over my shoulder throughout, and I really was not ready for that. I mean, I couldn't do that again. But he uh, had been trained by Dee Dee Allen, a great New York film editor. She did Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. And uh, in both cases, Sydney, in one case, Sydney took over the movie from another director, 
and DD was attached to the project. So that meant um, we were watching, all of us in New York were watching how this immovable force would meet an irresistible object. And he basically let her cut. Sydney's personal life was calmer at the time. He was married, newly married, and happy. So he was, and he had no schedule. So he was very happy to let her cut. And meanwhile, I had done Lenny, I had done Godspell, a couple of movies. So he asked me to do Network. That was through Bob Fosse, because I had done Liza with a Z for Bob Fosse, a television special. And he had, um, he asked me to do Network, and I did Network, and he really was, he loved everything I did. It, it's the easiest film I ever have worked on because Sydney doesn't give you a lot of material. Basically, I picked the best takes and just zipped through. We made almost no changes. I was, I delivered my first cut five days after they finished shooting. And wow, that's and were you cutting at all? Like yeah, oh, no, no, I was cutting okay. all the way through. Yeah. Still pretty fast, yeah. It was okay. I mean, nowadays <laughs> you sort of have to do that, but it was pretty simple. Um, and basically a no-sweat situation. I had a good crew, and 10 days later, we turned it over to the sound effects people, because you know, we made a few little changes with uh, uh, Patty in the room, and Sydney, and everybody liked my cut, loved my cut. And imagine my surprise when I was nominated for an Academy Award. I really was stunned, though I thought it was a great, great movie. I didn't think, I didn't think the editing played a large part in it. Looking at it now, mm, 40 years later, yeah. it's it's a pretty well edited movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had the chance to see it at the uh, TCM Film Festival last uh, year in a theater. Yeah, yeah. It was really amazing. Good the film. performance is Faye Dunaway and yeah. Peter Finch and William Holden. Yeah. Especially Faye Dunaway and William Holden, their relationship. Yes. Especially yeah. I like that storyline quite a bit. Yeah, Bill was terrific. And, and you know, Patty was a poet and a playwright. Uh, and he basically sort of wrote the same story a lot, which was one man against the system. Yeah, the hospital. hospital and, was, yeah, yeah, very similar yeah. film. And Altered States, which was uh, had an unfortunate end for him, but um, that too was basically the same story in a way. Uh, but the casting was fabulous. Sydney's direction was flawless. Um, the only thing that's dated about the movie at all is maybe the costumes and the sideburns. <laughs> but uh, you could put that out today if you could get it made. Yeah. There are a few movies like that. That certainly parallels out. what we're going through right now with the media. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> I mean, you know, that was in the news then, the oil crisis, and mm -hmm. but the, the taking over of television. Patty was way prescient. I mean, he really knew what was going on. Anyway, but compared uh, comparing Bob Fosse to Sidney Lumet in terms of style, Fosse I guess was known for shooting a lot of footage and sort of yeah, he wanting shot, to play he with shot it. He what he needed. He shot yeah. what he needed. But you know, when you're doing a musical number, you tend to shoot several takes, and you might shoot a minute of film for a four or five second piece. Mm -hmm. And I began to learn to look for that piece as I was working with Bob. And it was it was a very nice relationship. I mean, I when I was asked to do 
when I was asked to do Eliza with a Z, um, I really didn't have much of a feeling for movie musicals. And then I met with Fosse up at the Broadway Art Studio, which is replicated and all that jazz. And it was so exciting having all the, he was rehearsing. Yeah. And all these dancers come sliding up to our feet. And it was just a remarkable f emotional and physical experience. And Cabaret had just opened, and my late wife had seen it. And she said, you got to see this movie. And I said, oh, I'll see it, OK. You know. mm -hmm. And then after I met with Fosse, I called her up and I said, I'm not coming home. I'm going to the movies. And yeah. I went to see Cabaret. And then I stewed all night, because boy, did I want to work with that guy after seeing Cabaret. He won the Oscar uh, that year, I think. That was later, yeah. but yes. Yeah. yeah, he did. And uh, it had just opened. Cabaret had just opened at the Ziegfeld, big theater. And I went to see it there, which is a good way to see any movie. So. Um, we hit it off somehow. Uh, he could be a difficult guy, but um, he wanted what he wanted. He knew what he wanted. It was interesting that you know, he started in theater, Bob Fosse. Yes. Uh, but when he became a film director, he was so experimental with the form. You know, it felt like he was really trying to discover yeah. something new. Well, a friend of mine wrote a book uh, called uh, Fosse. Uh, uh, his name blanks, but I was, um, everybody's name blanks. But he asked me if I knew anything about a theory that people had, that Bob had gone off at some point in his career and snuck away to some film school somewhere to learn about film. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> One, well, I didn't know about it, but that didn't mean much. But I asked other people who were quite uh, intimate in a working level with Fosse, and they never heard of it either. What happened, Bob was a, he was a choreographer, great one, a director. He worked in television. He was on Dobie Gillis as a dancer. He was a great dancer. Um, and what he cared about was perfection, much like you know, Fred Astaire or all the good dancers really care about a kind of perfection. So all I wanted to do was give him perfection as best as I could. Uh, but he had, he, had, uh, he had become uh, Stanley Donan's dance assistant. Oh, directed and Singing in the Rain? And Stan yeah, Stanley yeah. did, yeah. Bob I didn't, was not on that, but the studios were grooming Bob to be the next Gene Kelly, as I understand it. MGM wanted him to do that. But Bob was a slight guy. He was balding. He never had the, the uh, heft, the masculinity. The Kelly was an unusual dancer for a male dancer in those days. And, uh, so Bob did uh, a lot of the dance numbers with Donan and uh, eventually ended up directing um, Sweet Charity, yeah. which was a show he had done on Broadway. And if you look at Sweet Charity, it's not a very good movie, but you can see in the dance numbers the way he treated dance just developed from there. But then Bob was a very smart guy, really intelligent and well-read. And he, um, you know, this was not casual on his part. He prepared. He really worked hard. Uh, 
on on the show and on all that jazz, the crew would set up the camera at night for the next day's shoot, the first shoot the next day for a shot, yeah. and then he would, um, they would always leave it a little off. They move it a couple of feet to the right or left, or maybe have it too high or too low. So that Bob, when he showed up before everybody else, he could look through the camera and he could say, let's move that over there again. Because, you know, he liked to have his hand in everything, but and everybody wanted to please him. But if you, I mean, we worked pretty intimately for, hmm, on three, three different movies, and I wish there were more, had been more. Uh, as much as 14 months at a time and um, there was only one occasion when he was just so pissed off but it was because of it. he was so angry with himself and it had to do with my own uh, my performance and all that jazz which I really had to work to minimize because I was bad well it's funny because you're you know you were editing a version of Lenny in the yes. movie and yeah. uh, sort of you know art imitating life in a way yeah. yeah. Well, all of Bob's films were based on um, real things. I mean, Lenny, Cabaret, no, but Lenny. Um, Lenny Bruce I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, there was Lenny, there was all that jazz, which was based on Bob's life, though he really didn't like me to say that. And um, Star 80, which was a really fine movie that not too many people have seen, based on a true story. Uh, Killing of uh, oh Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy Stratton, yeah. yeah. And uh, on that film, we had to be very careful because there were a lot of live people still around. Uh, Hugh Hefner, who's still around. For I that forget. Thing. Did uh, did he use the real names of the people, or were they changed? Some of them uh, were real. Some of them were changed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Dorothy's name was not changed, nor was the guy who killed her. Um, but Hefner's name, Hefner's name was real, but a lot of the other people were you know, composite characters. Um, but we got along very well, and what Bob liked, and what I loved about working with Bob, if something didn't work, I mean, we, we would rework something until we were happy with it. Yeah. And I would say, well, you know, she's not really very good in this particular scene. And he would say, no, no, let's, let's leave it. Okay. And months later, he would come in in, a, in the morning and he would say, how about we go back to that scene and we remove this and this? So I would go back and do it, and I'd say, that's working great. And he said, you should like it. It's your idea. He would remember things. Uh, he, he gave everybody back a feeling of being a part of the company. Yeah. And we were a company. I mean, they kept us, he kept us together on several films, including All That Jazz, which was uh, delayed twice, once for recasting and, and once because we couldn't find Roy Scheider. He wasn't available. Right. We had to wait for that. And they put us, the whole crew was put on, a, to my knowledge, half pay for several months. You're not going to get that anymore either. <laughs> so they were basically holding you until uh, yeah, yeah. So they could get Ray Schneider in there. Yeah, I mean it was. Uh, you know, I mean that that's a film I really wanted to do because I saw what was there. You know, they talk about invisible editing. People talk about invisible editing and how editing should be seamless. And yeah, for the most part, you should not be aware of it. Mm -hmm. 
But a film like All That Jazz just wore its structure on the outside like a turtle. Um, exoskeleton, I think, is the word. It. Um, what was the uh, the screenplay for All That Jazz versus the final product? Uh, what, well, what that's an interesting, interesting story because Bob yeah. worked with a friend of his, Robert Allen Arthur, who has a credit on the film as producer and co-writer. And Bob Arthur well, came out of the golden age of television, like Patty did. And these were remarkable people, um, really fine intellects, and they knew show business. Yeah. So. Bob wrote his life story with Bob Arthur, and of course, what happened was, okay, I gotta jump back a little. When we did Lenny, um, Lenny had some structural problems and performance problems, um, and Bob wanted Dustin Hoffman to have more of an edge, and Dustin, like many actors, could not be nasty. He really, actors want to be liked, for the most part. Even if the character is unlikable, they yeah. want to try to... I mean, I said to Bob one day on Lenny, why don't we compress? The structure of the film was very much the way you see it, except I suggested we intersperse the real-life sequences that comedy routines were based on, yeah. that we cut them up more and intersperse them with each other. And what that did apart from allowing us to cut out some of the bad jokes, was uh, it, it, it gave Dustin's performance much more edge, because things were shorter, we didn't linger on anything, yeah. and we were able to build our own punchlines, as it were. Um, so Bob thought he could take that and apply it to all that jazz, and he did, with Bob Arthur. There was a great deal of structural gridlock yeah. In it, because when we're in, these uh, are in his head so much. So you're sort of crossing from reality to this yeah, dream a lot that of he's that having. Was, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But a lot of that was written in to all that jazz. And when we wanted to make changes, it was much more difficult to do it. So the screenplay was in in my memory was very similar to what came out. Very much influenced by the editing of Lenny. Of Lenny, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the same with um, with uh, Star 80, which was more flexible because Bob made it more flexible in the rewrite, you know, in the new script. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we got along wonderfully, and I wish that uh, he had lived longer. <laughs> he was going to do a film about Walter Winchell, which should have been really interesting. Well, that would be right after Star 80. He was yeah, he there. wanted to do Chicago, but as he put it, he couldn't solve the problem. And I said, you mean the problem of working the musical numbers into a story? And he said, yeah, that's it. And he never did, and I don't think the Chicago film ever did either. Yeah, um, felt a little unbalanced, the, uh, the yeah. Chicago adaptation. I, well, I didn't like the softer version that that was based on. And Ryan King uh, sort of owned the rights to it. And they softened it up quite a bit in the other version. I saw the original Chicago on Broadway and I was knocked out. Not that it was a great show, but uh, it had power, it had stage strength. And 
then it got softened a little bit, and that's the one that they based the uh, movie on. And I was kind of glad I wasn't involved with that. <laughs> Though at the time, uh, it seemed like a good idea. Uh, I was curious for you, when you're yeah. getting a film, do you find it helpful to read the screenplay, or do you think it's better oh. just to look at the footage and try I, to go I always there? read the script. Yeah. I mean, because sometimes, sometimes one gets sent really bad scripts, and you say, why would they make this, you know? Will it ever get off the ground? You know, and, and even if it does, why make it? Yeah. It's. Um, I think every editor I know reads a screenplay, because otherwise you're going in blindfolded. You don't know. I mean, I guess. I guess if you didn't read a screenplay and you had a long relationship with a director, you could trust them. And nobody wants to make a bad movie. Nobody ever goes in to want to make a bad movie. I mean, the director, the writer, the actors, nobody. Yeah. But boy, they turn up a lot, <laughs> a lot. So How often uh, has it been where you've read a screenplay and you think this is absolutely perfect and then you see the, the rushes come in mm -hmm. and it's almost diametrically opposed to what was on the page in a way. Well, I don't know about diametrically opposed. It's always different. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who thinks you can go from the script to the state to the the shooting stage and skip the editing processing or write release that, it ain't going to work. <laughs> For one thing, people shoot so much nowadays. Yeah. A friend of mine posted on Facebook that he had uh, 95 hours of film on his project and he was only halfway through wow. the shooting days. Because directors don't say cut anymore. I mean, you've got the digital. Yeah, it's stuff. a hard drive. You can it's a hard drive. It takes an infinite so amount of material. Yeah. And script clerks, script clerks can't keep up. So you don't know what you get it, where it is. You eventually have to look at all of it. We used to have dailies. That sounds like we had dailies then. Um, dailies meaning like the whole entire crew would meet and, and watch right. them together. Yeah. At the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the shooting day, or maybe at lunchtime, you'd look at the previous day's material. I never found them to be, I mean, what was useful about dailies was you got a sense of the tenor of the director and the tenor of the set yeah. and where the film was going. And if you wanted to, I rarely had a director sit next to me and tell me, use this take, don't use that take. Almost never. It's just, there's too much to keep up, even when they didn't shoot a lot of film. And that's what script clerks were for. They would circle the takes, and, yeah. uh, and that didn't mean I would use those takes, but it meant I had a clue as to where the director was going with the take. And sometimes it wouldn't be the last take, it might be the first take, or the you know, first and fifth. You don't know. But uh, when it comes to that, um, do you like to make a cut by yourself yes. before a director comes in? Yeah, I think almost every editor does. And now, again, because of the schedules we have, you have to keep right behind camera, or as much as you possibly can, right behind camera. So editing simultaneously from production almost. days. In some cases, yeah. people actually cut on the set now, Wow. Um, which I wouldn't want to do. 
<laughs> I mean, I always found that what the... It feels like you would be influenced by what's happening. Partly. You know? Yeah. Walter Murch, who is a wonderful editor, uh, and a really, again, a tremendously intellectual guy, um, he never wants to see the actors in costume uh, because it will affect his view of the material. I've often had the director say, you think I should reshoot that? Because I, I, we had a tough time getting that performance. I always, when I go into a movie, I'm working for the director. I'm not working for the producer, ever. Um, I'm working for the director and I'm working for the movie, the story. Yeah. Um, I think what people don't understand about editing, lay people, is that it's uh, in large part a psychological job. Because as you just described, you are between the director's vision and what he really shot. Yeah. And I'm not demeaning, there's just a difference. Uh, and it could be almost anything. It could be a bump in a dolly. It could be... It could be the tone of the performances. The What's supposed of, to be dramatic comes off comic and vice versa. Well, you're not going to get that with a professional director, but you might yeah. get a bad day from an actor. You might get something, and you have to protect the story. But um, it's a psychological job. It's not just... And then, then you get the second part, which is the producer is here and the director is here. And what do you do then? Yeah. And that can be tough. That can be very, very tough. And I've been mostly spared those things. I've been very lucky. But I hear about it all the time. Well, especially it seems like you've worked with you know, directors over and over again, Nick Cassavetes and... Sidney yeah, Matt. not that many. Well, Cassavetes had his own strength um, in that if he didn't like what was going on, uh, he'd just say, to heck with this, I'm going to be on the golf course. And uh, he'd disappear. And the studio would either give in or usually they gave in. At least they gave in partially. Major changes are hard to make um, once a film is shot and once a film is cut. You know, once you look at it, it's a different movie than it is. Mel Brooks said to me uh, on the 12 chairs at one point early on, he said, don't touch my movie. You editors touch my movie and it's not my movie anymore. And I said, Mel, your job as a director is to take in from the cameraman, take in from everybody. Yeah. Take the ideas, input comes together yeah, and synthesize the forms. ideas, make the film better. And suffice it to say, we, we, we got along fine for the whole length of the post-production. But um, we had, at that point, some pretty hairy moments, unpleasant moments. Um, but uh, again, to be an editor is not the easiest job in the world. I mean, I've loved it for a very long time, but uh, you, get, you get in the middle sometimes. Yeah, and it's very rarely like where you're isolated and you're just cutting the movie and you're by yourself. Oh, I, I wouldn't, you know, if somebody said to me, this is your movie, you do it. Yeah, I do it. I mean, my first cut is usually pretty close to my director's cut, except it's longer because the script, last film I did was 3.20, my first cut, about 3.15, 3.20. And it was released at to 10 maybe and it was long at that yeah. but the director 
when I told him, you know, the film I thought was very good, but very long, and he said, don't worry about it, you know, we can get it. Nah, it's not that easy to start removing chunks and to get something. It all starts with the script, really, and it, and it finishes in the cutting room, I think. Yeah. Do you ever, um, you know, going into a movie, you know, you're reading the script, you know, as we talked about before, do you ever make suggestions, you know, you could tighten this up, maybe take this scene out, maybe move this around. Very rarely, because because nobody wants to hear it. Um, <laughs> oh, just from like an ego standpoint. Yeah. People don't want to hear it. Yeah, it's also tough. I did a film years ago, really bad comedy, and for about forty-five minutes to an hour, it was a very funny comedy, rude but very funny. And I read the script. I really wanted to work for other reasons, but I really wanted to work um, at this time. I should have taught myself a lesson. But um, I said to the director and the producer and the writer, we were having breakfast together in New York, and I said, you know, this script is in really terrible shape. And they said, oh, we know, we're working on it. I don't know what that means. And they were working on it to the point where the actor would be in his scene, acting, <laughs> and they, at a break, they come in with new pages, yeah. um, and that didn't help. <laughs> and the problem with the film was, uh, it got too rude for its time. I mean, it, the ending was extremely bad, unpleasant, so unpleasant that the audience that would laugh for like an hour, at the end of the film, they hated you, absolutely. You wanted to crawl under your seat, get out of the theater, <laughs> invisibly. Um, it's funny. Some, you know, most of the time it doesn't work, and then there's like the rare exceptions, like with the Tootsie. I think they were rewriting it every day, and yeah. somehow they managed to get a movie that yeah. was, you know, yeah, like happened. a masterpiece. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. Yeah. 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 Oh, I think it is. I think you need a good, solid script, and and then you can run free. Then you can, for everybody, then the actors have some space and director has space, editor has space. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, Sidney Lumet, I mean, he would, I think, rehearse the movie for two weeks yeah. before you Oh, that it. was incredible. I did, uh, well, the second movie, and network too, I guess, but uh, Last of the Muggle Hotshots, uh, Gore Vidal wrote the script, and uh, we rehearsed in a, a rehearsal room, really, an empty room above uh, Ratner's restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant on 2nd Avenue. And the first day or two they spent at the table read, like a play. And then uh, Sydney would have somebody come in and they'd block where the furniture was going to be in the scene. And the actors would walk around the furniture so they knew where to go. Then they'd bring in furniture. And you, they don't give that anymore. They don't give rehearsal time. So the actors, by the time they walked onto the set, knew where they were going. So that, that time was well spent, and then he would yeah. shoot so quickly. Yeah. It was, you know. Yeah. Oh, the, the, on network, the technical people up in Canada, the guys who were running the um, video rooms. Oh, when Peter Finch is yeah, doing his scene. We shot the room. video stuff up there because um, in Toronto, that's about all that was shot in Toronto, but um, because to redress a newsroom set here in New York, 
they would have had to knock it down overnight, build our set, then build up their set again the next morning. It became a logistical nightmare. Yeah. So it was just cheaper to go up to Canada at the time. And the technical guys were all Canadian, almost all of them, behind the console. And they were amazed. I would talk to them afterwards, because I was around then. I had nothing else to do. It was cold in Toronto and <laughs> snowy. But I would talk to them, and they would be amazed, because Sydney directed like a television director. You know, uh, camera A, camera B, C. And so they were astounded to see a guy move like that, because I guess they move slower in Canada. <laughs> but Sydney, he had no, he wanted to finish his job and get out and get ready for the next day. I mean, that's how he did it a lot. I mean, he, he prepared, he finished early, sometimes really early, and um, you know, the actors would go play golf or whatever they do, and uh, so they would prepare the next day's material. Yeah. But as you said, he made, he made so many movies. You know, yeah. Not all of them were, were masterpieces, but the ones that were masterpieces are so it, the, excellent. The, the average is really pretty good. I yeah. mean, if you go back, I mean, 12 Angry Men is basically a television show, but still, oh, yeah. the performances are incredible. Well, it came out yeah. of a television show. But the way he shot it, the way he yeah. chose you know, lenses for each character. Oh, Sidney knew his lenses. Sidney knew everything about what happened on the set. Not so much editing. But, uh, I remember I was reading his book, uh, Making Movies, yeah. and he would describe how, you know, I think for the 12 Angry Men scenario, you know, he would have, uh, he would chart out lenses, you know, as, yeah. the, as the movie progressed and the room became tighter, and yeah. he had a whole schematic uh, for how he yeah. wanted to shoot something. But you know, sometimes that kind of rigidity would affect the film negatively too. But you were still carrying out his vision. Yeah. And, um, and he was not flexible when it came to the cutting room. He had his ideas. The end of Network was very interesting because when he shot it, I looked at the dailies and I said, why did he shoot this shit? I mean, I understood everything else in the movie. I got it. But the assassination scene at the end. You, you mean how he shot it or? How he shot it, why uh, he had certain shots in there that were yeah. laid out. And Sidney called me, he was shooting, this is also how he got so much stuff done in one day, or you know, on a movie. Yeah. He was shooting, they were shooting in a vacant sound stage, a sound studio, across the street from where I was cutting. Sidney called me in the morning, he said, when you get to the ending, give me a call, because I want to cut that. I said, okay. So he came over at lunch hour, and um, he said, okay, I want you to do this, 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 this. And there were 15, 20 shots. I said, okay, give me a minute. And I understood everything he said, and I'm thinking, this is gonna be a dog's breakfast. This is terrible. And I put it together exactly the way he wanted it, absolutely exactly. And it was exactly as I thought it would be, made no sense. And he looked at me, and I gotta give Sidney credit, he looked at me, try it your way, and he walked out. And he went and he had his lunch, and I went and I had my lunch, and I cut it, and that's what's in the movie. But what he had, uh, what he had suggested, what he had in his mind, was not logical. It wasn't yeah. logical. It wasn't dramatic, and it didn't do what it had to do, and it wasn't even funny. 
So I guess sometimes when you're like cutting on paper, I'm sure, I'm sure he had a yeah. shot list, but oh, yeah, what sure came did. out on the other end wasn't the same as what he had written down initially. Well, it might have been. It yeah. might have been exactly the same, but it, it's still not that transition from the mind of the director, from the script to the mind of the director, to the dailies, to the cutting, things happen. Yeah. It, it, it's in every film. No film, and I've talked to a lot of editors, no film comes out of the camera release ready. Not then, not now. I mean, if you watch some of the films in the 40s and the 30s, they're short, concise, people talk fast. I love that, they talk fast. Some of them are 80 minutes long, 82, 78 minutes long. They tell great stories. They, they don't hold up for sophistication, perhaps. But in their own way, you know, they're really... Yeah, like uh, Preston Sergis, for example, yeah. his films have that speed, that yeah. rhythm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love to make actors talk fast. I mean, I really... I, I, uh, I remember I was listening to an interview with uh, Mike Nichols, and he was talking about when he directed The Graduate, uh, he was constantly telling the actors to do things faster. And it was because, you know, it may have seemed fast to them what they were initially doing, but what appears on screen when it's filmed, it's always slower. So it's better just to go from a, a faster pace standpoint to begin with. Yeah, that's probably true. The other thing is if you're a stage actor and you're in an audience, you know, theater with yeah. an audience, and you can judge from the audience's response whether you should pick up the pace, or particularly in a comedy, yeah. but whether you should pick up the pace, whether you should slow it down. And it's the same for dramatic thing, too. You, you can tell if the audience is with you and rolling with you. You can't do that in a movie. You're, you're looking at the director to tell you that. He's your only audience. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to get points for cracking up the crew. <laughs> uh, so, as an editor, I want to protect my ass down the line, but I want to work on something that I think has um, power, universality, and has an ability to reach an audience. It's really important. Uh, lastly, I wanted to ask you about if you have any favorite scenes or scenes that you feel like were really uh, cut together the best that you're maybe the most proud of. Me? Looking back. <laughs> Um, well, most of Lenny, uh, particularly the, the ending of Lenny, which, uh, yeah, which I, I had a big hand in making up. Um, but uh, certainly the opening of all that jazz, which is, you know, remarkable. Also, Most of the scenes in Network, uh, the scene at the end of Network when the uh, executives are plotting to kill him, mm. is uh, when they're on that they're in that conference room. in the conference in, in yeah. the office. So they're all sitting on different walls, different yeah. colors. Let's kill the son of a bitch is phase line, <laughs> um, which I did. I used later, oddly enough, uh, in Lenny when we were. We had to show the film to the producer. We had been left alone with that film. Uh, and the producer, David Picker, 
was we knew him, and you know he's a friend and lovely man. Um, but it was time for him to see the movie. He wasn't pressing us, but it was time. So we had a show to him. We had an appointment. Let's say it was Friday morning, uh, nine o'clock, and it was Thursday, and we didn't have an ending. I mean, the film it just dribbled. Yeah, as you were saying, you were, it was about also putting more edge into Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, no, we had done and, that, but now yeah. we came to the ending of the film, and it just wasn't playing. And Bob took us all to dinner, my whole crew. We all went to a good steak dinner. And we got back to the cutting room about 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. And probably, and I, I mentioned earlier, I don't like to work late. I just, but we were prepared to do an all-nighter, just get this thing in shape. And going up in the elevator, I turned to Bob and I said, why don't we just kill the son of a bitch? And, and I realized later that line came from Faye in, in Network, which I had done. Yeah. No, that couldn't have been. I think Network was a couple it's, of years yeah, later. Yeah, it was later. Yeah. So I don't know. It came from somewhere. But it foreshadowed what would happen. I guess. I said, <laughs> you know, why don't we kill the son of a bitch? Bob said, what do you mean? I said, no. Look, from the time he's dragged out of the courtroom to his body on the floor, everything else is filler in there. We had 20 minutes of him saying goodbye. I mean, I didn't realize it until we were going up in the elevator. I just, yeah. let's kill the son of a bitch. And, and also that so, speech he gives in the courtroom when he's yes, defending himself terrific. against obscenities, that's such a high point to, to end Terrific speech, on. a little yeah. long, but still a terrific <laughs> speech. I, I later, I prepared that to show to a class at one point, and I actually took out a chunk of it because it goes on. But at that time, and yeah. in the structure well, of the, the movie... the performance is so good, too. It he was terrific. Away, yeah. He was terrific. So we went back to my cutting room and put it up on the bench, and I took out 20 minutes, two reels of film. And I cut from him being dragged out of the courtroom, saying, you can't, you can't cut off the information. You can't stop the information. Yeah. Cut to him on the floor dead. And went right through to the end. We both jumped. I mean, that was it. We knew it wasn't finished, but that was good enough to show the next morning as the ending, working ending. And what we did was put back little pieces of the 20 minutes. Uh, Dustin saying goodbye to his kid, waving goodbye, and his mother says, you should lose some weight, and he waves goodbye to his kid. Uh, Dustin walking around his wreck of a house we had eating peanut butter out of a jar. We had oodles of material. There were fun, 20 minutes of material, which the story was over. It was time to go away. And it just, you know, it just came over me like that. It just, boom. Mainly I didn't want to work late. But yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm but I, I think that ultimately made the movie stronger. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You end on that powerful moment in the courtroom. Yeah, and, and then whoo, you realize what the result happened of here? what happened to his life. Yeah, I mean, we know he's a drug addict. We know he's a wreck. We know, uh, and you know, then we put back little pieces. We put back some of the interviews, parts of the interviews, but um, that was all after the fact, after the body, and the newsreel crews and the cops coming. 
so that yeah I'm very proud of that that was I think I think I really learned how to be an editor on that movie because Bob let me run a little bit and uh, I liked it I mean I always liked the cutting but that was I mean when you can start changing around um, something that you think is wonderful and you can make it better it feels that's yeah I think that's uh that's you know one of the uh, great parts of editing is that you don't real you know when you're shooting the movie you don't realize what can be improved and once you step into the editing you know it sort of changes your perspective and yeah rediscover I mean, the movie in a way when you're a director on a set someone's always pulling your coat I mean you have to answer so many questions into the night into the day into the weekend while you're shooting. After from props to wardrobe to Everybody has what something colors for the you. wall what, yeah, what do yeah. you want here, what do you want there <laughs> and there's no time I mean I used to love sitting at dailies but nobody does it anymore you give everybody a, a DVD to take home and if they look at it you know, they look at it if not, I've worked on films with director never looked at it I've worked on other films where they really did look at it and they know what they shot, uh, but that process, uh, the ongoing process of shooting a movie is grueling and exhausting for the director and for the crew. And when you come to the cutting room, it's, it should be a haven. It should be a place where, you, and a lot of directors will say this, you know, it's a place where you can sit down and look at what you really did and deliver it, make it better. <laughs>